As you know, this, these missions and these Monday evenings, the, the next four Monday evenings and tonight, um, in this time together, to take an opportunity to reflect on the prayer that's called Anima Christi. And it, Mother Mary Frances, um, who I'll share about here in a minute, um, wrote this book about this prayer. And I'm going to just kind of bring some reflection and even some reading right out of the book um, each Monday night um, and try to cover most of the book through the co- course of Lent and just reflect together on her beautiful reflection on this very beautiful and powerful prayer. Um, and so it's kind of what we'll, we'll do on these Monday evenings is to reflect on this prayer with her. Um, and yeah, I, I look forward to it. Mother Mary Frances of Our Lady was the mother abbess of the Poor Clares in Roswell, New Mexico from 1964 to 2005. So for a long time, she was the mother superior of the Port Clare um, house in Roswell, New Mexico. And to be a mother superior for that long is quite a feat <laughs> um, for a religious order. She was born in um, St. Louis, Missouri on February 14th. She was a Valentine baby, 1921. And she was given the name Alberta. That's her baptismal name. The interesting facts is the doctors had told her parents that likely she wasn't going to survive. And so her mother baptized her. Um, as you know, we can baptize one another. Now, the normal minister would be a priest or a deacon, but they, this was a case of emergency where they didn't think she would live, so her mother baptized her um, right there. Her father was German and her mother was Irish, so she had quite a mix of character in her, being German-Irish. And so in, if you look at her life and study it a bit, it certainly seems like, yeah, she was German-Irish, <laughs> American. <laughs> At the age of 16, she heard um, the call to her vocation to religious life. And after some years at um, St. Louis University, so she went to university, though knowing this call, and spending time as a candidate with the school sisters of Notre Dame, she heard God's call to ultimately leave all behind, um, all that she knew and all that she was familiar with, to become a cloistered contemplative nun. And in July of 1942, at the age of 21, she entered the Poor Clare Monastery in Chicago. She entered the Poor Clares, which is a religious order. Clare was the companion to St. Francis of Assisi. So Francis and Clare of Assisi. And the Poor Clares were founded and the Franciscans were founded. So they're sort of the, the parallel to the Franciscan order. While still in the novitiate, she published her first volume of poetry. She was a writer from a very young age. And that first volume was entitled, Whom I Have Loved. And this gained her visits from famous poets, poets and writers from around the country that wanted to come and meet this, this nun, this sister, um, who wrote such beautiful poetry. In 1947, at the age of 26, Sister Mary Frances made her final vows and was shortly thereafter sent with other sisters to found, to found a foundation in Roswell, New Mexico. They were very much like our sisters, the handmaids, who were sent here to find a foundation, uh, an offshoot, a branch um, of the order and a new home and a new place. Mother Immaculata, who was her superior at the time, gave her the duty to write a book for a, const, uh, write a, book for a contest of books um, written by unknown authors. So the author wasn't, it was solely judged on truly the literature and not on the name um, on the front cover. 
And so when she asked Mother what it should be about, Mother responded in this way. She said, I don't care. Just win the prize. The roof needs to be fixed. <laughs> Brilliant. So um, Sister Mary Frances went to writing, and after writing the first chapter, her aunt got a copy of it, and she showed it to a guest at a dinner at their home. And it happened to be Frank Sheed of Sheed and Ward Publishing. And Mr. Sheed, after reading it, the first chapter, told her, tell her to get the rest written and get it to me, I'll publish it. The book was entitled A Right to be Mary. It was the story of the foundation of the Roswell Foundation and became the number one bestseller in 1956. So though it never entered the contest, the roof did get fixed. <laughs> Sister Mary Frances held many roles in the cloister. Um, she was secretary, organist, portress, librarian, Latin and music teacher, and the sister in charge of the fruit. <laughs> Who's in charge of the fruit? <laughs> <laughs> sister Magdalena, of course. <laughs> Um, she went on to write a number of other books, um, plays and works of poetry. She's very well written. She's got a lot out there. In 1964, at the age of 43, she was elected abbess of the monastery, at the age of 43. And she went on to serve on national and international councils for religious life and many other duties in her role as abbess. She really did a lot, and a lot for religious life, um, to preserve it and to preserve it in holiness and in goodness. In 2005, after over 40 years as abbess, she handed her duties on to a new abbess. And shortly after, she suffered a fall from which she never recovered. And on February 11, 2006, the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes, she had a great devotion to Our Lady, she passed away with her sisters surrounding her, and she was buried on February 14th on her 85th birthday, Valentine's Day. Um, I myself have only recently discovered this wonderful woman uh, and her deep knowledge, devotion, and love of Jesus and Mary. And my hope is to, in some way, uh, convey the depths of her heart and mind in the following reflections in the weeks ahead. So our journey will be with her writings on the beautiful prayer, Anima Christi, which means the soul of Christ. And the book, um, by the same title, this book was published in 2001 by Ignatius Press. So it's, a, it's towards the end of her life that she writes this, or publishes it at least. Um, and on the back of it, uh, one of the quotes on the back states this. This book allows one to listen in on what she has to say to those who wish above all to find Jesus and to build their lives on him. This book allows one to listen in on what she has to say to those who wish above all to find Jesus and to build their lives on him. And I found that to be very true about this book. So may we seek this very grace in the weeks ahead to find Jesus, whether for the first time or in a renewed way. Jesus is always found in a re renewed way when we find Him. For our hearts grow, and so we find Him anew, 
because we're always being made anew by His grace. And on this we build our lives. And that's what we're about. Um, a little bit about the Anima Christi prayer. Mother says in her preface, this is a favorite prayer of hers and that Pope Pius XII prayed it every morning after receiving communion. And a lot of people have that practice. Hopefully you got a copy of the prayer tonight and the sisters and others so beautifully sang it um, at the beginning of this evening, which we'll do each week as well. It is indeed a very famous prayer, um, made so in the 16th century by St. Ignatius of Loyola. He's the one who really made it famous. Um, but the title of the prayer and the prayer itself, really, it dates back and is in manuscripts dating back all the way to the 14th century. So it's older than St. Ignatius. A lot of people think that he wrote it. Um, but it's, it's actually found before St. Ignatius as well. Um, but he's really the one who brings it into the spiritual exercises, his, his spiritual exercises, and makes it very popular. Um, Mother Mary Frances Fredley points out in her brief preface to the book that it is a prayer rich in Christology. That's the study of Christ. Really, these reflections are going to be about Jesus. And in devotion to that, um, and it's a devotion that can enrich our, our thoughts and our prayers. She shares that this is private prayer, which is really important to know, but that with each private prayer, it is intimately linked to the communal prayer of the church. So she states, liturgical communal prayer, the Mass, the Liturgy of the Hours, and the deepest private prayer, those prayers that we sing from our hearts or cry from our hearts or we recite, such as the Anima Christi, flow in and out of each other. And we develop certain code expressions, she says, in our very private life of love with God. Which is very true. Though we pray in a certain way as a church, and our private prayer too that flows out of that, we also develop a love language and a way of expressing our love to the Lord. That's unique to each one of us. And sometimes it comes through a written prayer like this. And she adds this, it is not to propose, and this is about, this is the beginning of the book, the preface. She says, it is not to propose the adding of a vocal prayer to anyone's own elected store that I want to reflect on the Anima Christi. And I would say that too, I'm not promoting that you pray this. Maybe you will take this on as a prayer you pray um, regularly. She says, but to explore its immense riches, which each can invest as God leads him. There's a depth and a richness to this prayer theologically and spiritually that hopefully I'll be able to draw out. And if I don't draw it out, I recommend you re just read the book then because I really feel she draws it out. So may this be our aim in this Lenten season on these Monday nights to truly re reflect on the immense riches of Jesus Christ and how we can invest in these great graces that he wants to offer us. The prayer itself contains the acknowledgement of seven parts of Christ. Seven parts, if you will. The soul of Christ, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the water that flowed from the side of Christ, the passion of Christ, and just simply the goodness of Jesus, and then the wounds of Christ. And after each acknowledgement of these different aspects of who Jesus is, there's a request made on the part of the person praying. Sanctify me. Save me. Inebriate me. Wash me. Comfort me. Hear me. Hide me. 
These cries of prayer are saturated with our belief in who God is and His plan for us. They ooze with the theology of Jesus and our great need for Him. And it is in this mode that I wish to reflect on the profound insights given us by Mother Mary Frances. And you're going to have to correct me if I at any occasion say St. Mary Frances, because I've just been thinking that a lot lately. The remaining portion of this prayer um, is a prayer for salvation for oneself. If there's one thing we seek in prayer, it is and ought to be above all else to be saved from eternal damnation and to be brought to the glory of heaven. And that's what this prayer asks for. That's why it's so profound and powerful and important and solid. The prayer concludes, Do not allow me to be separated from you. From the evil enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me and bid me come to you, that with thy saints I may praise you forever and ever. Amen. I have to share that as I re-looked at some of this last night, uh, sitting in the rectory and praying, sort of going over it again and getting some of my thoughts for the next part of this together. I couldn't help but when I got to this and re-reflected and re-prayed it to think that this is what was in Bishop's heart that morning that he died. Don't allow me to be separated from you, Lord. Deliver me from the evil one right now. And in this hour, call me and bid me come to you then. That with your saints I may praise you forever and ever. Uh, I was just very moved at this thought of, I, was, I knew his heart, and his heart would have prayed something like this. Um, so it's such a beautiful prayer to ingrain in our hearts too, because when the hour comes, if we know it, this is a prayer we can grasp for whenever that hour comes for any one of us. So let us steady our gaze upon Jesus. In our adoration, let us not hesitate to cry out to Him as He is and as we are. And that's what this prayer is about. It's about who He is and who we are and our mutual relationship. Remember that His love and mercy is for you and always fighting for you. And be fixed on the presence of the one that we call upon. And may Mother Mary Francis guide our thoughts and prayers towards him. Because that's what this is about. Um, including kind of opening remarks. Because that's really what this is. It's just setting the stage and helping us understand, well, what are, what are we doing and what is this about? Who is, who is this author? What is this book? What is this prayer? How much time do I have? <laughs> So a little bit about my desire for these evenings and where it kind of came from, this whole idea. I mean, it, was, it was sometime before Christmas, I think, that this book ended up in my lap, and I've been trying to recall, like, how did this end up in my lap? I actually don't remember exactly, but I think it came up as a suggestion in Amazon, or on Amazon maybe for me. Nonetheless, it became a regular morning spiritual read in my prayer, particularly in Advent. I would just read one chapter every morning and pray with it. Um, and it fit me well, as they're short chapters. My attention span and focus can be uh, short sometimes, and so uh, it was a really good book for me and my prayer life. I was amazed at the ease in which it brought me to reflect in a deeper way on this prayer that I've prayed on and off since college, and at different moments in my life it was very, very powerful in my personal prayer. As I sat with it more and was continually moved to share this with the parishes in some way, 
Um, and as we developed our Lenten plans, it became evident to me that this might be a beautiful way to be led together in a time of prayer each week before the Blessed Sacrament. To be before Jesus and to speak of Him and then to move our hearts to cry to Him. Um, and so that's, that's what we'll do. Um, for this prayer is a prayer about and toward Jesus who is with us here in the Eucharist. And all that this prayer contains is presently here in our midst. The fullness of Jesus is here in our midst. His soul, body, blood, wounds, his goodness, everything, his passion, present in the Eucharist. We ought to feel blessed to be given such a beautiful opportunity by Jesus and with him. Um, just a simple note, if you're unable to make it one week, um, please don't give up. A lot of times people will give up. Well, I didn't make it that one week, so I guess I can't go again. Um, we're recording these talks so they're going to be posted online in case you do miss one or you want to re-listen to it um, if, it's, if they're worthwhile we'll see, right? <laughs> but also I want to just say that please remember that these nights aren't just simply like a Catholic TED talk to come listen to that really this is about being together in the presence of our Lord in reverence, in prayer in, in reflection in thinking, and kind of, it's not really conversation because I'm the only one talking, but you're talking in your heart and in your head. I know that. That's why, <laughs> that's why oftentimes I say, you know, this is a conversation because a lot of times I can see what you're probably thinking or feeling <laughs> and know it's in your head. So there's definitely some aspect of conversation. So, but it's really, it's about being together in prayer in this Lenten season. So it's not just some Catholic TED Talk. There's got to be more than that. And that's why it's so important and why I do invite people and invite others to join us because it's about coming together before the Lord. Um, not just listening to some talk. Okay. So keep that in mind. And so with His presence these nights and um, without His presence these, these talks and these nights would be empty. They, they really wouldn't be full. They would be incomplete. But because we are here together with him in the Eucharist, we are indeed at the very feet of his soul, body, blood, water from the side, his passion, his goodness, and his wounds. We're at his feet. And he wants to sanctify you. He wants to save you. He wants to inebriate you. He wants to wash you and comfort you, hear you, hide you, protect you, and lead you to the saints in heaven. So being here at his feet is good because he wants all those things for you. May we in this Lenten season and with this prayer ask him for those things and acknowledge the reality that he can. <laughs> he can sanctify you and save you and hide you and hear you and lead you to heaven. And so... Let's get started. Let's jump into this. The very first line of the prayer in the very first chapter of the book says, Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. What is this? Soul of Christ. And what does this mean? Sanctify me. 
To understand the soul, we have to understand the human person. We have to understand just simply what we mean by person, even. A classic philosophical definition of a person is an individual substance of a rational nature, having mind power, willpower, and free choice. So we're an individual substance or being of a rational nature. We're able to reason, right? My dog Cutter is not a person. He, he can't reason like we can, <laughs> right? He knows and thinks and stuff like that, but not like we do, right? Having mind power, willpower, and free choice. And this is what we really mean when we talk about the soul. That the soul is, the faculties of the soul are really mind, our mind, our intellect, our will, our ability to move ourselves, and our freedom to choose in that. To make choices with the realities that are around us. And to do that freely. Like we have the ability to I get to make this choice. And so we have to understand that the soul is that part of us that we live from. It's the source of our life. Mother very beautifully reflects in the first chapter about it being, because the Latin word is anima. So she reflects on this reality that our soul is that which animates us. It's what gives us life. So she talks about even the face, you know, face being animated. And she speaks of when an actor is on the stage and they're kind of dull and boring, the director might yell out, you know, be more animated. Be more alive. Allow life to come through you. And really, that's, the, that's our soul. It's what animates us. If you were here on Sunday, we talked about the book of nature, and there's, there's inanimate objects. There's things that are not animated. Those are rocks. They're not animated. <laughs> right? And then there's vegetation, and they have some animation because they go through the, the life, growth, and death cycle. She talks about this very simply and beautifully in here. Then there's animals. There's those things that are even more animated because they move <laughs> and they have more functionality. But then there's the human being, there's the person. That there's a greater depth and an ability in these, these things that are within us that are very powerful. And that's the soul. She says this um, concerning that. that each of us has his own created animated principle his particular soul created by the Father. Unlike Christ, we are in need of redemption of the continual sanctification of our spirit. But our vital life principle, the animated principle, is like Christ's soul in being the creation of the Father and in having the same ministering faculties. Memory, imagination, intellect, will, and in being served by the senses, everything we take in through the senses. So the soul is this animating factor that's within us. It's our intellect and our will, our memory and our imagination, working in line with our body, our senses, taking it all in. Okay? That's a base level in order to understand and then get into a conversation of the soul of Christ. Mother begins by reflecting on the soul of Christ and the reality that 
Christ is eternal, right? So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has been from all eternity. But at a certain point, enters in and, as we know, unites the divine nature and the human nature in the one person of Jesus. Okay? So Jesus' soul, and she makes this clear right off the get-go, Jesus' soul is not like the divinity, his divinity like just put into a human body. He has a human soul, a created soul, just as he has a created body. And here we enter into mystery. Okay? We could spend hours contemplating that. Where Mother goes with this is this reality of this beautiful nature of which the created human soul of Christ, united perfectly to his divine person and spontaneously with his, with his divine nature, it's this beautiful reality that Jesus lives out. She says this about him. She says, yet doubtless our human minds limited by reason of our humanity need a bit more time and a great deal more effort to absorb the fact that the human soul of Christ was also created. She goes to, and then she goes to a little bit of a simpler thing to, for us to think about in terms of his humanity. He entered into humanity perfectly equipped. And this is amazing. Think about Jesus. He's perfectly equipped. And without any of our infirmities of original sin. With a human mind of such depth as we cannot gauge. A human body complete in a perfection beyond that of any other human creature walking about in a body. An exquisitely perfect human nervous system. A supreme sensitiveness of spirit. Emotions tuned like a Stradivarius and beyond it. It's a perfect violin, essentially. And human preferences and non-preferences. And this is really something to think about and leads us to understand his soul better. Human preferences and non-preferences. It is rather delightful to think that Jesus may have found beans more agreeable than corn. <laughs> Liked bananas better than oranges. But that he had a human soul, our thinking tends to come to a grinding halt before this. But he did. This is something about Jesus, is that he had preference. And he had to do what we need to do. Making choices and allowing that animating principle in him to move him and having a free will over it. But that he liked certain things and probably didn't like other things, you know, or he preferred things. He preferred one type of bread over another. I was contemplating earlier, I wonder if he preferred red wine or white wine. <laughs> but Jesus had preferences, just like you do. He was very real. He's very real. We can sometimes fantasize a bit about Jesus in terms of creating this fantasy of this perfect human being that's not really real. He was very real. And so let's talk about that. That he had a soul. He had a soul that was moved, that was impacted, that was affected. I had to make decisions and choices. Mother reflects on the, his memory first when she speaks of his soul. 
The part of our soul is our memory. Our memory impacts our soul, that animating principle. So our memories cause us to move. Right? Good memories cause us to move in a certain way emotionally and with choices. Bad memories cause us to move in a certain way. Right? Jesus had memories too. She reflects beautifully on the, the ten lepers. And this reality that he heals ten lepers and only one comes back. And the wound that this would have caused Christ. Only one came back. And Jesus expresses that hurt. He's like, only one of you? Where are the other nine? Don't they care? Aren't they grateful? We see Jesus hurt by this. We have, to, we have to recognize that in the gospel. Jesus is hurt by those nine. And when we look at the gospels, we recognize like, the soul of Christ, his memory is hurt. It's a bad memory for him now. The nine. And with that, he has to make a human decision. He has to make a decision on how he's going to act now because, out of that. The reality is, is he acts still in goodness. That with the memories that he has, even if they're bad, he still steps forward in goodness. This is the beauty of the soul of Christ. Not that he doesn't suffer the memory, but that he continues to walk in the good with the memory. The thing about Jesus, too, is he has to choose that. He, and he's, he's, he has to move himself. It's not like it's in, in his human soul. It's not as though it's just really simple for him. Because if we look at the Gospels, there's that interior struggle. It's important to remember that the struggle that Jesus has in his soul isn't sin. Because he never sins. That Jesus, like you and me, struggles with the temptation and the memory of not acting in goodness anymore, but he doesn't. He moves his will with this memory to still choose good. Kind of daunting, isn't it? Seems impossible, doesn't it? She reflects as well about Peter and how Peter had denied him, right? Peter denies him. <laughs> and in the end, Jesus, after his resurrection, chooses to reverse his denial. Chooses not to hold on to the hurt and the pain and the rejection that Peter gave him on Good Friday after promising so many things. Jesus looks at him and says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And what he does is he takes the bad memory the way that I see it. She didn't reflect on it so much in this way, but I think this works. He takes the bad memory, and with that, he actually creates, through reconciliation, three new good memories. But the soul of Christ moves to make three bad memories, those three denials, to be moved through reconciliation and contrition and penance, if you will. A reversal. Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Okay. And now he has three good memories of Peter.
What will you do with your memories? You have memories. Jesus has memories. Are you building up good memories on top of all the bad memories? So that on that day, when you stand before him, he will and wants to look at you and go, hey, you know what I remember? I remember when you came before me in adoration on that Monday in March. I remember that time that that person you saw in need, you reached out and helped them or visited them. I remember the rosaries you prayed. I remember the tears you brought before me. I remember every Mass you came to. And I remember your face every time you walked out of that confessional. That's what I remember. With his memory, he chooses the good and wants to. It's the beauty of the soul of Christ. The second thing that she reflects on in the chapter is that Jesus had an imagination. This is what she says about imagination. Listen to this. There is another ministering faculty to the soul of Christ, his human imagination. One must not demote the imagination to a kind of perverted faculty of the soul. You can sometimes think that the imagination is this perverted, just bad thing, right? She says, true, St. Teresa of Jesus calls the imagination that crazy woman in the house. And we know what she means. Certainly, if we allow the imagination to wander about undirected, it can be just like that. A crazed woman wandering in the house of our life and adept at creating havoc and useless suffering. Does your imagination ever cause cause you havoc and useless suffering? My goodness, is this the human condition, right? But the imagination, per se, is a glorious faculty. It is our inbuilt television created by God long before man ever thought of throwing images on a screen. Man is always so far behind God. (laughs) Isn't she great? So yes, the imagination is a marvelous creation, but one that cannot be allowed to overpower the soul. It has to be led and disciplined into subservience. Not a a changed chattel of the soul, but as a good servant. His imagination is particularly strong in some persons. And the suffering it can cause to them can likewise be a channel of suffering to others in whom it is less strong. This still does not mean that there is anything wrong or base about imagination as such. She goes on to speak of the imagination of Jesus. The imagination of Jesus was perfect. So he knew perfectly what was to happen. And he knew perfectly about you, that you would be someday. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, clearly and perfectly in his mind, in his imagination, he could see everything. From our sins, to our being. He could see perfectly with his imagination every wound that was about to be inflicted. Every pain. 
every drop of blood, and every single thing that causes it. What does he do in the midst of that reality and that thing in his head? He feels the fear. He feels the anxiety. He feels the desire to to run from it because it's going to be bad. But he moves his soul. He allows his soul, his human soul, to move. To say, not my will, but your will. And he surrenders. After knowing completely in his mind, in his intellect, and seeing clearly what was about to happen. And causes so much anxiety, as you know, and so much fear that he sweats blood, right? Imagine, imagine his heart rate. He had to be so scared. Yet he doesn't sin in it. He allows his soul to be moved toward goodness, and to the will of the Father. Soul of Christ. That perfect soul that with memory and imagination and everything still walked in goodness. We cry out to you and say, sanctify us. Sanctify us. Sanctify. What does that mean? It means to be like Him. It means that within our soul, we can be moved to goodness no matter what. That from the memories we have, from the things that we imagine and think and presume and assume, all those things running around in our head that most of the time aren't even reality because we're so imperfect because of our sinfulness. To be sanctified is to act and to be like Jesus and to move like Him and to allow our soul to be animated like Christ's soul is animated, which is animated towards mercy and truth and goodness and beauty and love. So we cry out, soul of Christ, sanctify me. And this is important. And here's why. Because you can't do it. You can't act like Jesus. Stop trying. Did Father just say that? Yes. Did he mean to say that? Yes. You can't sanctify yourself. You can't move your will your intellect, your memory, your imagination, your senses toward absolute goodness and love and mercy and beauty. So quit trying to think you can. And quit trying to do it. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. It is Jesus united to you, within you, in your soul, and united to your soul, that then you will be like Him. You see, you can't make yourself like Him. All you can do is empty yourself out and let Him enter 
and take possession. And then be united with him. Where it's, as St. Paul says, she mentions this, it is not I who live, but he who lives in me. And suddenly my animated being, my soul, is moving in a different way because it's Christ living in me. Not me trying to live, but Christ living. Be sanctified by the soul of Christ. Stop trying to sanctify yourself. So as you listen to these things and you listen about how Jesus reacted and acted in all these things and moved towards goodness, it probably felt a little daunting, like, wow, that's pretty incredible. How am I going to do that? That's the thing, you're not. If it's going to happen, he's going to do it. You have to let him. The way you let him is by the emptying of yourself and letting go and saying, Jesus, enter. Live in me, through me, with me. Be my soul. Our weakened and damaged soul, yet so beautiful and glorious and full of potential for eternal perfection, must find the strength to actuate its potential, not in itself, but in Christ. The Apostle says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. It is not that we abdicate our own principle of soul, our own mind, but that the mind of Christ takes possession of ours. Thus the Apostle testifies that his own humanity has been perfected in the soul of Christ, that he has made the soul of Christ the animated principle of his own life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20 Perfect human fulfillment is to allow oneself to be completely taken over by Christ to deliver oneself to the sanctifying power of the soul of Christ, the anima Christi. It is to permit the perfect and unblemished animating principle of the created Christ to become my own. To become my own. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Soul of Christ, sanctify.